This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Kate Quinn and Janie Chang about their co-written project, The Phoenix Crown. I've spoken to both authors individually for this podcast, but as someone who herself recently published a jointly written novel, I couldn't resist the opportunity to find out how that process worked for them. The Phoenix Crown is an absolute delight, and the writing is seamless. The story focuses on events leading up to, through, and immediately following the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. But it opens five years later. Summer, 1911, London. A rose by any other name, someone quoted, and Alice Eastwood was hard-pressed not to roll her eyes. When it came to Shakespearean quotes about flowers, hang Romeo and Juliet. She preferred Julius Caesar. Nature must obey necessity. Because Mother Nature was a carnivore. She ate what she wanted when hunger made it necessary. Alice had known that in her bones since that day five years ago when the earth shrugged its shoulders and a city cracked in half. And now, please join me in welcoming Kate Quinn and Janie Chang. Hi, Kate and Janie. I look forward to talking with you both again. Thanks for inviting us. Yes, thank you so much for having us on today. How did the two of you meet, and what made you decide to collaborate on a novel? Kate, would you like to go first? Well, sure. Um, We met because we had been thrown together on a little three-city book tour uh, with another of our lovely friends, Jen Robson. And uh, on that book tour, everything went wrong that could possibly go wrong. I mean, if there was a flight connection, we missed it. If there was luggage to be checked, the luggage was lost. If there were cars involved... um, car you know, trucks overturned on highways to make us late and uh, you know wheels came off and had to be replaced with spares and by the end of this uh little three city tour though we still were all such fabulous friends we had gotten so much laughter out of it and it was such a great experience a great start for a friendship so that later on when i had the idea because i'd sort of long been toying with the thought of writing about the 1906 san francisco earthquake and i thought well i, I know 
this feels so much like it needs a Chinatown heroine to make it the story that I know it could be. I, I thought, well, the thing is, if Janie and I managed to become friends under the book tour where everything went wrong and we're still friends by the end of it, surely we could write a novel together and still be friends by the end of it. <laughs> And that really was um, our primary objective, apart from writing a really good book that readers would enjoy, was that we definitely wanted to come out of it still friends. Yeah, I've co-written a novel too, and it, it is, it's a very challenging process, but if you can get through it, I think it's very rewarding. Um, and if you can stay friends, as we did too, it's, it's really the best thing. What was it about the time period and the events that drew you in to write this novel? Well, really, it was the thought of a disaster novel. It's sort of a built-in drama. You have something that is going to come barely down the pike to get your characters, and they don't know it, and you do. And there's a lot of drama inherent in that situation. And, you know, as I said, I, I thought I really needed a Chinatown heroine because, you know, Chinatown was such a huge and vibrant part of San Francisco's history at that point. But so much of the fiction about that time in the earthquake only seemed to deal with Chinatown in a peripheral way. And so I knew what I wanted to write. I wanted to write an opera singer heroine because there was a famous opera production that happened the night before the earthquake. We you know when San Francisco was very much at its glittering best right before it was destroyed. And I just really thought what I had called Janie and then she, she said she was interested as well in the history. I thought, well, I really, the whole idea was just, I have my opera singer heroine, you have your Chinatown heroine, we can each do whatever we want with them, but let's just throw them together, you know, two very unlikely women and see what happens. And do you have anything to add, Jenny? Yeah, because when I looked into it, I thought, my first concern was, can I find something in there about women living in Chinatown in those days that would be interesting? Are there enough conflicts? Why, yes, there were plenty of conflicts and struggles and you know, traumatic things going on, all of which adds um, good fodder for the fiction mill, doesn't it? And I also really like the fact that... Um, I was able to write a heroine during a time when the first generation of Chinese Americans had been born. So they were really, you know, the first generation of Chinese who were straddling two cultures. They were still very pulled into their community and the Chinese culture, but at the same time, you know, being educated in the U.S. by American school teachers and for the kids in Chinatown, missionaries, they could see that there were other options available to them that were not available to their parents. So that made it a uh, very interesting bicultural, uh, you know, set of uh, set of situations for my heroine to deal with. So how did you go about it? It sounds like each of you had a main character. Um, and then there are other main characters, uh, at least one other important point of view character. So did you write the characters independently or did you go back and forth? Uh, did you plot in advance? How did you go about it? Janie, would you like to go first? There might be one word that Kate and I both scream out, which is spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> we knew that we could not be as loosey-goosey as we normally are writing on our own, that if we were to remain friends, we had to have a story that we both agreed on 
um, how our characters meet, what the challenges are. So we actually plotted it out very carefully, chapter by chapter on a spreadsheet. You know, um, Kate's character got the even rose and I had the odd rose or something like that. But for every single chapter, we knew how it would begin and how it would end so that the next person um, writing the next chapter could dovetail their action really seamlessly. And that was, I think, a key component of staying friends was that we both agreed on the story that we wanted to write. And it was a thing, too, where we thought, you know, we both have quite different writing styles and we thought it would also make things easier if, therefore, we didn't have to worry about creating a joint writing style. It was about the fact that if we each wrote our, our, we each wrote the scenes from a particular point of view, then if our styles are different, it doesn't matter because the women are very different from whose eyes we are writing, we are writing. So therefore, uh, if, if they do sound different, then that's good because, you know, they're very different ladies. And then when they go back and forth, it's easier to tell who is speaking and who, who is speaking and, you know, what voice you're hearing. Yeah, we did very much the same thing. I've I've been more I was more organized on that joint project than I've ever been in my life. Everything else that I wrote. <laughs> I think there's a sense of too like when you're writing jointly. Maybe you felt this as well. It's like you're willing to you know sort of settle and scrap if it's just you. You know you're willing to you know a little bit let things slide. But when you have the sense that you might let somebody else down if you let something slide, just the you know the honor student snaps right to the fore, <laughs> and you just end up thinking. At least I certainly did. Of like I will be damned if I let JD down and don't finish this chapter. I know she's waiting for it. You know so it's like. You have the sense, there's a sense of accountability when you have a partner, which is, I think, uh, which is very good for our deadline. It meant that we could work quickly together. We really did not want to let each other down. And there was the nice feeling too, of, you know, you had excitement from it because it's like, I wanted to finish my part because I couldn't wait to see what Janie did next with hers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And every time we finished writing a chapter, we would upload it to Google Docs so the other person could also read it. And that was so exciting. It was like I could not wait to see what Kate had just written because her character is wearing a blue dress. Okay, um, sh she's going to be wearing a blue dress when I write her into my chapter. And the other thing was um, we never... I don't know about you, Kate, but I never let anyone see my writing in its raw form. But <laughs> knowing that Kate was going to be the next person reading it, and it's not just anybody, it's Kate who knows what she's reading. It was like, okay, and I need to give it a quick polish up so that it's not total crap when I upload it. So I think on the whole, when we compiled all the chapters at the end, we had a more finished looking manuscript than we normally would have on our own at this stage of the game. Yeah, there's not quite so much of the whole thing when you do when it's just you, where you might just put like, insert brilliant witty comment here and then just keep going. <laughs> Yes, good point. <laughs> so how did you handle Alice then? If you, if you were taking uh, Gemma, and we'll uh, talk in a minute about who these people are, and Janie was taking primary responsibility for Suling, did you mix her or did one of you take Alice as well? I think I did most of Alice's stuff, and that was just because by the time we realized 
that, you know, we had a we have a third very limited point of view in this book, who is Alice Eastwood, a botanist who is an actual real historical figure, whereas both of our um, main uh, narrators are fictionalized. But we realized it would be kind of fun to give Alice a very limited point of view in a few places. And I think by the time we got to that point, Janie was in the middle of move of having just moved house. So uh, she was, you know, it had a few more things on her plate. And I said, you know, these are just a few small scenes with Alice. Let me give a stab at it. And I think I, I think I ended up doing most of those, but I could be wrong. <laughs> it's all kind of a blur at this point. And I have to tell you, it must have been hard. It must have been hard for Kate not to let Alice take over the whole book because she was just a magnificent human being. She really was so interesting in real life. She was. And it was a lot of fun, including her and with our fictional ladies. So she's actually the first person that we meet, Alice. Um, I'll ask Kate, since she was the one who did the scenes, tell us about her and why you started the story with her. Well, Alice was a real uh, figure and a fabulous one. She was, you know, a uh, early 50s botanist. She was the head of the botany department at the California Academy of Sciences. She had this wonderfully adventurous life. She was unmarried. She went on these hikes and, you know, gathering expeditions to bring botanical samples back to her lab. Uh, She eventually had plants named after her. And she was uh, historically a famous uh, survivor of the San Francisco earthquake and the disaster. And she had a famous you know, rescue where she risked her life in spectacular fashion to in to uh, rescue a lot of the botanical samples from her life's work in her lab. And we, we knew from the beginning we wanted to include that. It was such a good dramatic scene and it really did happen. And we would just weave our ladies into that as well. And then I thought, it, then we ended up thinking, well, I wonder if she could be the one to open it because the thing is the book opens it's about five years after the San Francisco earthquake. And it gives you the hint of the mystery that sort of pulls like a thread through the whole thing. And which tells you that, all right, the end of the San, after the San Francisco earthquake, there is still a mystery to be unraveled. And Alice's eyes seemed like a good way to um, explore that and to introduce that because, you know, when you are starting <clears throat> with a flash forward in time, it, it does, in a sense, spoil things for the reader a little bit. If we had started from with um, one of our heroines, then the, the reader has had a glimpse of what they are, where they are, and how they've done. And I wanted to, I mean, we both thought that it would be interesting to leave the reader a little bit in the dark about what do things look like for our two main heroines five years after the earthquake, so that that way they can't just, um, they have a little bit more suspense going into that earthquake. They know that Alice will survive because you see her five years later, but they don't really know how things look for our two heroines, Gemma and Su Ling. And using Alice's point of view at the beginning was a way to you know, introduce that little question mark and that bit of tension. Yeah, I agree. If, if she, Especially if she's a historical character, they can look her up on Google and see that she survived. So it does add that bit of spice if you don't know what happened to the, the other two that you're following through most of the story. So in that opener, which is still in 1911, we're introduced to two crucial story elements, the Queen of the Night Orchid and the Phoenix Crown, which at the end of the prologue has just been found. Um, Janie, what can you tell us about those objects? Well, why don't I talk about the Phoenix Crown? Um, because there's so much more uh, relatable to Kate about the flower. So the Phoenix crown was a type of headdress worn by Chinese empresses, member or female members of the royal court. And they 
and the empresses were known as the phoenix and the emperors were known as the dragons, hence the phoenix crown. But the key element of the design of a phoenix crown was um, ornaments made of kingfisher feathers, these absolutely vivid, brilliant blue feathers, which were cut and then pasted on these um on gold or gilt, and then fashioned into ornaments and put onto these headdresses. And these ornaments of feathers were actually as expensive as the jewels themselves, simply because, well, you know, it was tough getting the kingfisher feathers, but then the artistry required to work with them was also absolutely amazing. And there are a number of phoenix crowns in museums all over the world, and most of them were, you know, looted from Chinese palaces during the late 19th century and early 20th century. And in our novel, um, one of, uh, Thornton has one of these in his collection, and it is the prized jewel of his collection of Chinese antiquities. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Kate, what can you tell us about the orchid? Well, the queen of the night flower is a... Uh, one of the rarest flowers in the world, not because the plant is rare, but because the, the plant only flowers uh, for one night. And the flower will open at night and it'll be, uh, you know, shriveled and dead by morning. So, and this is pretty much, a, I think, almost a once a year sort of thing. It's amazingly, uh, you know, you know, transient. And I love, came across it because we already had a botany thread since we had Alice the botanist in the book. And since we had our robber baron uh, named Thornton, who is, you know, a Gilded Age millionaire and railway magnate and who is already interested as a collector, it made sense that we could perhaps make him a collector of botanicals as well as of chinoiserie. So we made him a collector of botanicals so we could have the Queen of the Night Flower be part of his botanical collection. And the other connection to that, too, with one of our characters is the fact that uh, the heroine who I wrote, her name is Gemma, and she is an opera singer, a soprano, and one of her roles is the Queen of the Night, which is the famous, uh, you know, uh, villainess in Mozart's Magic Flute. She has this fabulous aria with these stratospheric high Fs. It's a wonderful, you know, firecracker showpiece uh, for a, a fabulous singer. And the Queen of the Night as a role, and then the Queen of the Night as a plant, the the parallels are just too fabulous to resist that was the reason why we really chose the queen of the night as a flower to be our rare botanical in all of this oh that's perfect and you lead right into my next question which is tell us about Gemma. when we meet her she's traveling uh with her pet bird uh on the train from new york city to san francisco so who is she and what brings her to san francisco beyond being an opera singer which we already know well, uh, Gemma is a former Nebraska farm girl who has managed to turn a glorious natural voice into a New York City career. She's in her early 30s, which is vocally starting to really hit the prime for a soprano. But she's still singing in the chorus, which she's not totally happy with. She knows her career needs to take off and it needs to do so soon. And so she has this chance at a new start. And there are 
hints that her fresh start has some darker places behind it and some secrets she's that are painful to her and her Fresh start involves she's just gotten a contract with the traveling Metropolitan Opera Company, which is you know, going around the United States doing uh, performances on the road. And she's going to San Francisco a little early to join the company once it arrives. And uh, she, her and she is going to be singing in the chorus. Uh, her, her very first performance will be a production of Carmen and the great Enrico Caruso will be singing in the lead role. And this actually was a real performance. It was uh, Caruso really was in San Francisco the night before uh, the earthquake happened and during the earthquake itself. And it was a real shining moment, uh, to, I thought, to really show what kind of place San Francisco was because they were, you know, a boom town that had made their money off of, you know, the gold rush, the railroads. But now they had that money. They want to import culture. And culture came, you know, it comes in the form of importing the Metropolitan Opera with with the biggest tenor in the world to sing for their millionaires and their groundlings alike. And Gemma is looking at all of this as a new start. And uh, she is really hoping that with this journey to the far side of the continent, that she will be able to finally find the spotlight and find that boost in her career that she really needs. Another thing we encounter in chapter one is that there, every chapter from there on has a date uh, and a time. Uh, I mean, to the minute about how far away the earthquake is. And I thought that was fascinating. I mean, it's clear why it's there, right? I mean, it's, it's like a ticking clock. It's, it tells you, um, here's this thing that's coming that these characters don't know. And it's just, you know, 12 hours away, it's four hours away and so on. But how did you come up with it as a pair of authors? Well, it, we thought it would be fun to have something that the reader knows, but the characters do not. And that's the reason, you know, it, impart, it does impart tension. It means that, you know, never quite forget that there's something coming down the pike for those people that they have no idea is going to be there. I originally got the idea um, from Ariel Lawhon's fabulous Flight of Dreams, which employs a very similar uh, device because it's about the, uh, it takes place on the Hindenburg. And so she also has a countdown to the explosion. And I thought it was such a brilliant way to pull that tension through the book that I thought, I wonder if we could use the same the same thing. And we ended up using that. And we've, we really enjoyed the set, giving the reader that sense that they know something that the characters don't, which is a fun thing you can do in fiction. And that's also where the spreadsheet came in really handy because we had to make sure that our timelines fit with the timeline of the earthquake and that ticking clock. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Spreadsheets are great for that. Um, so, uh, Gemma is expecting to meet her friend Nell when she gets to San Francisco. And tell us just a little bit about her, because she turns out to be a very central character, and we don't want to give too much information away about her. But what can you say about her and how uh, she and Gemma know each other? Well, uh Gemma and her friend Nell were sort of two girls coming up together in New York in those cold water flats in the Bronx. You know, Nell was a, you know, scrappy teenager who wanted to make it as an artist. And Gemma was, you know, in, practically an ex-milkmaid from Nebraska, a small town, trying to make it in the big city as a singer. The two of them, you know, they're young, they're scared, but they're also scrappy. They've got hope that art will, you know, 
be a way for them to make a career and a future for themselves. So that's how they become friends when they're just girls and they're living together. They're going to auditions. They're trying to, you know, wedge their feet in the door of the artistic world in New York City, which is never an easy thing to do in any era. And they've maintained that friendship all through now that they're uh, older. And Gemma has one advantage coming to San Francisco is that her friend Nellie is already here and has been writing her letters about what a fabulous place it is to make a fresh start. And so she thought she would have her friend there to help her out, find her feet on the other side of the country. But when she gets there, she finds that her that, that uh, Nellie has in fact already left and not too and uh, without too much of a backward glance either. And that sets into into motion a certain train of events that is going to end up being important. <laughs> Actually, even in that first chapter, we do meet um, Su Ling, although we don't know at first that it is Su Ling. Uh, so she, uh, she really comes into the fore in the second chapter. Um, it's one day closer to the earthquake, uh, so it's the morning of April 5th. And when we meet her, she's sneaking into a place called the Palace of Endless Joy. So, Janie, tell us, what do we need to know about Su Ling at the very beginning, and what takes her to the Palace of Endless Joy? Su Ling is a young Chinese woman. She has been orphaned. Her, both her parents died in a dreadful accident, and they owned a laundry. And it is now run by her uncle, her, her father's brother. And unfortunately, um, her uncle is not much use and is in debt. And the way he's going to get out of debt is he's going to marry off Su Ling to the highest bidder. You know, single young Chinese women are a very, very precious commodity, expensive commodity in Chinatown, because this is during the years of the Chinese Exclusion Act, when Chinese were no longer allowed to bring their families, their wives or children over. So Su Ling being born in the U.S., she's that rare, you know, Chinese woman who is actually living in the U.S. in Chinatown. So, and Su Ling's mother herself was one of those unfortunate trafficked women. So that was one of the rather traumatic things that I learned during research was just how horrible life was in Chinatown and for some of the women in general who were um, really sold off by their parents in China because things were just so desperate and dire and their parents sold them off knowing that they might be trafficked, that they might be bonded, you know, as indentured servants on the other side. So her mother actually was trafficked, brought over and worked in a brothel before her father paid whatever it was to get her out of hawk in the brothel and bring her mom into the laundry business and living as um, a free person. So Su Ling, what makes her interesting is that she's also been educated by missionaries inside Chinatown. There were a number of missions who were there vying for the souls of the heathen Chinese in those days. And one of the ways they did this was by setting up uh, clinics for healthcare and schools for education. And so Suling knows what it is to be American. She has the examples of those missionary women around her. And she also knows what it means to be an obedient Chinese girl. And she's struggling against that. And the Palace of Endless Joy is a brothel, <laughs> which is run by her mother's best friend, who also, you know, had been a prostitute. And... 
So obviously she has to sneak into the brothel without anybody finding out because supposedly she's from a good family and her uncle would be truly, truly upset and punish her for ruining the family name. True. Although Madame Ning is kind of a mother substitute for her. I mean, that doesn't that wouldn't change her uncle's opinion, of course, but she is an important figure in the novel for that reason. Absolutely is. And I really loved writing the character of Madame Ning, who was brought over as a prostitute and managed to end up running her own brothel. And um, Su Ling calls her auntie, not because they're related by blood, but because she was a close friend of her mother's. And Madame Ning, I think, is someone who is very resilient and resourceful. And despite the disadvantages of how she ended up in San Francisco, she's managed to carve out a business for herself and she's you know treating the women in her uh, brothel as well as she possibly can given the profession even from this short description of the first two chapters it's very obvious that um, white women and chinese women are being treated differently i'm sure that was not an accident that you introduced this element could one of you or both of you talk about that element of the story I think I mentioned before, this was the era of the Chinese Exclusion Act. And as part of that, the media was incredibly negative towards Chinese. It was very racist. There's an example of there was a cholera outbreak in San Francisco and the police cordoned off Chinatown. And there were some Chinese residents um, who lived within that neighborhood. Sorry, there were some white residents who lived within that neighborhood and they were allowed to come out and do their business outside of China. Chinatown, but the Chinese residents of Chinatown were not allowed to. Just, you know, so many examples. Um, it was a very, very difficult time where um, the newspapers and politicians were talking about um, the Chinese living in squalor and in terrible conditions. And it's, did they not understand sanitary measures? Well, it was because they were living in one tight little geographic area, I think six city blocks, for protection. And girls like Su Ling absolutely could not leave um, Chinatown without being in danger. So that's why she dresses up as a boy to leave the boundaries of Chinatown. It's, um, it was actually very, very difficult reading about it. And it was also really important for me to have Su Ling there as a character, as an ordinary person from an ordinary family who shows the other characters that there are, you know, that uh, Chinatown is not just brothels and opium dens, that there are people who go to work every day in the factories, people who are sewing in cottage industries. There are families raising children and children walking down the street together hand in hand with their nannies, that there are some perfectly ordinary human beings living there. Because in those days, um, both the politicians and the media found that it was very profitable to um, to sort of really raise um, the specter of fear of the, you know, the yellow fever kind of thing. So I wanted to counter some of that. And we also wanted to show too that, you know, a different kind of racism that existed at the time beyond just, you know, the, you know, the, the fear, the hatred, the, you know, cordoning off of the other is also the fact that there was, there was this exoticizing factor as well. And the fetishization of, you know, the exotic and the Orient, you know, uh, chinoiserie was really popular at this time. You know, it, it wasn't that far from 
uh, geographic or it was not that far in time from when you know there have been these tremendous lootings in China uh, at the turn of the century. And so you had you know Chinese screens, Chinese art, Chinese porcelain was hugely popular among the wealthy at the same time as there's also these laws passed to make sure that the Chinese themselves are restricted to their area that they can't bring their families over. So we're also showing the way, for example, the robber barons are collecting, you know, looted antiquities from the Forbidden City and from, you know, the old summer palace in China and then displaying them proudly and often incorrectly and how one of the ways in which Su Ling makes money is that she and some of the other women from young women from the brothel are hired at expensive parties to walk around in, you know, probably what someone thinks is authentic Chinese uh, robes or authentic Chinese uh, costume and serve champagne as living exotics and how nobody had a problem with that either. And how when we get to the part of the novel that's set in Paris, we have Paul Poiret, who is making a sensation with Oriental themed designs. Well, his Oriental themed designs are an absolute hodgepodge. It's everything from Persian to Japanese to Chinese, you know, all thrown together and sort of, you know, into a blender. And, you know, that's the kind of thing we can also show to see how there is, there is the fear and there is the um, quarantining and all of the, the, the legalized ways in which you know the people are being preyed on but there's also there's this fascination which leads to fetishizing and exoticizing what is different and both of those things are someone that are things that someone like Su Ling has to deal with. Yes I, I particularly like that balance um, in the story because although all of that is there you know it's not preachy it's just a natural part of what the characters experience and it's really well handled um, so kudos to both of you for for doing that. Uh, I also wanted to mention that Su Ling is an expert embroideress um, which is one of the ways that she finds a, a path out of this box that she has been put in because of her ethnicity. And let's talk about that robber baron, uh, Henry Thornton. Um, he, <laughs> he is, um, he's the kind of character you love to hate. So <laughs> tell us how you came up with him. Well, we actually found the name just on the deed of, I think, a, a, you know, a, a, some silver mines that were in the area at the time. So we thought, all right, that sounds like a good start for a, the sort of uh, Gilded Age robber baron of the type who makes a lot of, and there were a lot of them in San Francisco, and there were a lot of them in New York, too. I mean, uh, the Julian Fellows show The Gilded Age is all the rage right now, and that is showing how you have these men who make a tremendous amount of money, and then once they have made it, they want to show it off, and they want to show themselves off as patrons of the arts. And so you have a man like Thornton who is comes onto the scene for both of our women, and you know he's a rather enigmatic and complicated character. You know he has, certainly has the prejudices of his time, and it is not intended to be glossed over. And at this, and he has you know um, he has you know a desire to collect uh, what he finds beautiful. He has a desire to be a patron of the arts, and because he does want to uh, funnel his money into the arts, it means that he offers both of our women opportunities. Uh, for Gemma, the opera singer, he offers her the chance to be a star. And you know it was quite common in those days for rich men to you know sponsor you know, great artists and, you know, give them the money to be able to shine in their profession. And that's a choice Gemma is going to have to make is whether she accepts that patronage or not. And he offers Su Ling a, uh, an op a opportunity as well at a point when she really needs it. Did you want to add anything, Janie? Um, also that, you know, 
you've got to believe that there's a dark secret behind Henry Thornton. There's more to him than what you first read about. So that's really, you know, for us, that was fun and interesting. And we also did some research there. And to me, he is very typical of the of that uh, that type of wealthy person. You know, he loves and admires and appreciates fine art, but he doesn't necessarily treat the artist so well. A quite different character is um, Gemma's accompanist, the pianist George Serrano. Uh, he comes across as a really great guy. Um, what, did, what do we need to know about him? Uh, he was going to be a bit of a contrast for me and add, you know, someone else that Gemma can, you know, interact with and make friends with in this city where she doesn't have a lot of time to do that. And I based uh, both Gemma and George a little bit on uh, my former college professor who was a, a wonderful, wonderful soprano who did, in fact, begin as this, you know, Norwegian blonde from a small town in Nebraska and had a glorious voice and made it all the way to the stages of Europe where she sang Queen of the Night all over the continent. And uh, she had uh, she had as uh, her uh, husband and still does obviously is a uh, her uh, the piano professor a piano professor named George who was also a performer and the two of them were a great team he was a fantastic accompanist for her when she had recitals uh, he taught piano on his own as well in Salzburg and uh, both of them are love such lovely human beings they're still friends of mine and so I kind of wanted to do it if I said I was doing a tip of the hat to my professor Sarah in um, who did start as named Sally. Uh, from Nebraska, what she called Willa Cather country, I thought I would do a tip of the hat to her George as well, because he was, you know, a great guy and a really sensitive, um, fabulous musician and pianist. And it, it really is one of those things that builds friendship very quickly between people making music together. And I knew I had to work fast if I was going to make this a friendship that was going to be believable, it, which because it is going to come down to some crucial moments during the earthquake. And I only had a few weeks to make them bond as friends. But if you spend a lot of time in rehearsal with people, you know, any theater kid will tell you or former theater kid will tell you like friendships happen overnight when you are rehearsing nonstop together. So one other character I want to ask you about is Michael Clarkson. Um, I, which of you created him and what's his story? Well, I created him, but I suppose you could also say that Madame Ying created him. Um, so Michael Clarkson is a sergeant in the San Francisco police, and his beat is it includes Chinatown. And his job is to go in there and raid the gambling dens and raid the opium um opium dens and um, also the brothels. But because he has a relationship with Madame Ying, a romantic one, um, her brothel, the Palace of Endless Joy, does not get raided often or in a serious way. And it sort of came about because I was thinking, so a businesswoman like Madame Ying, who is in her own way utterly ruthless, would not hesitate to enlist someone like Michael Clarkson to her side, and he would not stand a chance. Okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, I also have to believe that she is, since she isn't really a, a terrible, terrible person, that after 10 years of this, she does have some actual affection for him, and he is actually totally in love with her by this time. So it starts out as a business transaction for her, and it's a benefit to her business. But in the end, we understand um, what their relationship really was about. I skipped over a couple of people because I don't want to give away spoilers. But are there any characters or incidents that I haven't asked you about that you would really like listeners to know? 
uh, more about? I remember a fun little bit of trivia that I threw in into the very beginning of the book was the fact that Gemma has the misfortune to run into someone who's literally called a, like the Flying Rollers from Benton Harbor, Michigan. And it's this missionary woman who has come to San Francisco to you know, pass out pamphlets and warn the sinners of San Francisco that this this uh, cesspit of the West must change their sinning ways immediately, or they will be swallowed up in, you know, flame, fire, and earthquake. And this really did happen just a few weeks before the uh, earthquake actually did hit. And the flying rollers of Benton Harbor, Michigan, when they heard about the earthquake, apparently they celebrated with a brass band. And, you know, like anybody who has ever gotten stuck on a train or a plane, you know, with that with a crazy in the next seat, you know, poor Gemma is having to deal with this woman, you know, preaching fire and brimstone at her when really all she wants to do is to get off the, get off the train and take off her shoes and put her feet up. <laughs> but that was the, the whole prescience of it. And the fact that the, you know, the prophecy turned out to be correct was, it was a detail I found in uh, one of my research books. It was just too delicious not to include. <laughs> We um, ran across people that we would have loved to given more ink to in the book, but we couldn't. One of these was a woman named Donaldina Cameron, and she was a missionary who worked in Chinatown. And she was feared by um, Chinese brothel owners and um, people and men who had sort of impressed or indentured Chinese girls in, into servitude because she literally would go into these establishments and drag the girls out and rescue them, um, shelter them in the mission and find a safe place for them to go. She was known as the white devil by these people. So she was an absolutely amazing woman and we're, we're just really sorry we couldn't have added her to the story but you know between her and alice eastwood it was like it was just too much too, too much richness um to be put in there and there was also one of donald dina's proteges a young chinese woman named tai liang who was uh, also like su ling um born in the u.s and her parents were going to marry her off to someone you know 25 years older and she was also pressed into servitude, but she ran away. She ran to Donaldina Cameron's mission house, ended up being like um, her right-hand um, sort of assistant in helping to save other women. And she also then um, ended up being the first Chinese-American woman to work for the federal civil service. She was a translator on Angel Island. And in her later years, uh, not much later years, she married one of her co-workers who was white. His last name was Schultz. And they had to go to Washington State to get married. And when they came back to California, because there were laws against mixed race marriages, they both lost their jobs. So these are some, just a few of the other people we would have loved to include in the book and put more of. But uh, sadly, as you know, uh, you can't include all the fascinating stuff that your research turns up no matter how much you want to. <laughs> That is so true. Um, what would you like people to take away from the Phoenix Crown? We have a theme of female friendship in this book. You know, um, Gemma and Suling are the most unlikely of friends. You don't even think that they'll have time for each other. And yet it is their friendship that gets them through. Yeah, that's really the thing we'd love people to have is that 
It is an adventure story. It's uh, it is a couple of different love stories wrapped up in there. It is the story of a disaster and what happens on the other side of that disaster and how a very bad guy gets his comeuppance. But it is also about women who come together and support each other through the worst moments of their lives and how they will come through the other side of that much stronger and the better for ever having known each other and admitted each other into their lives. That's great. So what are you each working on now? And will you collaborate on another novel someday? We're just sort of saying never say never at this point. I mean, it kind of feels like we just, we're just getting this one out. So who, know, who even knows what the future holds? Um, I do have another book coming out this same year, July 9th. It's called The Briar Club, and it's about an all-female boarding house in early 1950s Washington, D.C. And I'm really loving how much grist there is in that time period, you know, with McCarthyism, the Red Scare, the Cold War, all of that, you know, really gritty stuff to dive into. So that's July 9th, and I'm going to be promoting that one almost as soon as we're done with uh, The Phoenix Crown. And on Saturday, just, you know, like a few days ago, I handed in my first draft of my next novel to my editor, and the title is The Fourth Princess, and it is a gothic novel set in pre-war Shanghai, because I already know a lot about that era, so I thought it might be a quick write, because I wouldn't have to do as much research. So it uh, features uh, a young American woman who's married a millionaire who's moved to Shanghai, and she hires a, um, a Chinese girl to be her companion slash social secretary um, slash translator. And the house that she has moved into is known as Prosperity Manor. And it has been abandoned for many years because the previous owner committed suicide there. And as both these women um, settle into their new lives in Prosperity Manor, dark secrets are revealed about the past. Well, I wish you both luck. I look forward to reading the new books. And thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I really appreciated talking to you both. Oh, thank, thank you, you for inviting us. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Kate Quinn and Janie Chang about The Phoenix Crown. Find out more about them at katequinnauthor.com and janiechang.com, respectively. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at New Books Network. You can find out more about me and my books at cplozzi.com, where I blog about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.